Yo, hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Equals. This is Nabil. And I'm Nadia. It's nice to be back with you, Nabil. Always, always is a pleasure, Nadia, to do this podcast and, and well, to hang out with you. Yeah, it, it is definitely my favorite part of the month, I have to say. But look, <laughs> I know you were bummed not to do the Kristalina Gorgieva episode with us last time. I mean, that sounds like the most American word ever. I mean, it was, it was, it was a great episode. It was a really terrific episode. I learned a lot and it was just amazing to, to, you know, interview someone who's going to have such a big say on the world coming out of this pandemic. And Absolutely. I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you for one, I mean, I, I feel so, so, so great about equals in a way that we're reshaping global economic institutions one episode at a time. That's the hope, right? Well, it is a podcast all about hope. So, and, um, and to be honest, we're going to need hope given what we're discussing today. Aha, uh-huh, nice switch. I see what you did there, Nabil. But uh, yes, we're talking about climate today. And, uh, and you know, we, we're living in a year dominated by crises, right? This mm. pandemic, the global hunger it's triggered, right-wing populism. But I mean, climate change, I, I, I genuinely feel like this is the existential crisis that is affecting literally every human being. And, and finally, we get a chance to talk about it on this podcast. Totally, Nadia. And, and for me, I'm, I, I think we're just starting to see not just how the climate crisis is this kind of, you know, ultimate crisis, but it also represents the ultimate failure of the economic model that we've had. And and we're seeing the impact of this more harshly than ever. I mean, I've woken up myself hearing from relatives in Pakistan hit by extreme floods, or, or even just seeing here in Kenya, how friends have lost crop harvests year upon year, how the seasons mm-hmm. have changed. You know, even the words for seasons are being used differently now. Really? That's that's super interesting. Listen, Sam Kiswahili Sasa. Very impressive, Nadia. Kidogo, kidogo. But let's stick to English, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Listen, hey, we have a guest today whose community really feels the impact of climate change every day. Mm. And, and this woman makes us think in a fresh way about tackling this catastrophe. I'm. It's such a privilege for us to be speaking today with Hindu Ibrahim. And I'm telling you, Nabil, she's got this way with words. It's, it's amazing. She's one of these people who speaks and you feel the hairs on the back of your neck just standing up. Um, she's a, an indigenous climate expert and leader from the Lake Chad region. Yeah, and, and she so profoundly takes the voice of her community to push world leaders for change. And she's a founder of the Association for Indigenous Women and Peoples of Chad, uh, amongst many, many other accolades and titles. But one thing I got to tell you, Nadia, that I was really struck by is her amazing work in bridging traditional knowledge with science in the fight against climate change. Absolutely. And I'm very much looking forward to, to having a chance to talk to her about that. And then after we chat with Hindu, we'll speak with Tim Gore, um, Tim. a colleague of ours. Good old Tim, indeed. Um, and Tim leads a lot of Oxfam's thinking on climate change. Um, and we'll be discussing with him his latest research, which shows who is actually most responsible for this climate catastrophe. It's going to be an amazing episode. Let's crack on. Let's do it. Hindu, hi. Thank you so, so very much for joining us on Equals. It really is an honour for us. And and yeah, we've just been watching the way you've been bringing your voice on climate to the global stage. The way you've been making sure the voice of your pastoralist and your indigenous community in Chad is being heard. And, and I see millions of people are watching your talks. It's very, very inspiring. And we salute you. Hi, Nabil. And hi, Nadia. Yes, it's a great pleasure being with you. And yeah, talking about nature, I'm hearing the birds in your background. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And yeah, yes, the birds in the background here in Nairobi are probably the best part of the podcast. But Hindu, let's, let's start there with, with talking about your community. And I'm really just keen to hear about 
your experience and, and that of other indigenous communities that you work with around the world of the changing climate that we see all around us? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, when you come from the community that depend from the rainfall, depend from the natural resources, land, you understand exactly what is happening when they talk about the climate change. And it is the same for all the indigenous peoples around the world. We do not need to read report to say that the climate is changing or just to watch uh, over TV that the ice is melting and say, oh, climate change is there. We live that in our daily life. We experience that in our life with the ecosystem. And I can give you the examples how our rain season changed a lot, become shorter with heavy rain that create the floods. And this is exactly what is happening this year around all the Sahel. In the, even the town of Khartoum, Jemena, Niame, uh, Douala, you having peoples that moving with canoe inside the city. And with the extreme weather that just happened four months before, with more than 48 degrees Celsius and 50 degrees Celsius in my country, like Chad, and it's ending with the food insecurity. So the picture, it's so scary that you cannot just read in the report wording, but you live it in your daily life. It is the same with my brothers and sisters in Amazon, in uh, Indonesia, seeing them home, forests are burning every single day. My brothers and sisters of Australia, seeing them ancestral land and all the worldwide that they are living with, just turning through zero, through nothing. And of course, adding to that, they see that rising around all the uh, Pacific, where my brothers and sisters experiencing the hurricane hitting them in the daily base very often than before. And of course, in all the Arctic, we are all witnessing how the glaciers are melting. But it is not about only glaciers, but it is for them about the winter becoming much heavier and there is no... Uh, enough uh, forces to the rangers to dig and get the pastures inside all the snow that becoming a ice because it's getting hot and cold at the same time. Hindu, hearing you talk about these impacts and, and not just in one community, but really around the world, and we're learning increasingly what's driving and in fact, who is driving that impact, right? Oxfam's research shows how the top 1% of the world's population is actually responsible for double the CO2 emissions of the poorest 50%. And I'm, I'm curious, when you hear about that level of inequality, what's your reaction? It is so ridiculous. We and the global South experiencing all those weather events very extremely affecting our life, killing our peoples. And then when I saw the report, the same 1% of the population of the world who are the rich ones, who continuously doubling all the emissions without caring that it is affecting the entire world. It is really irresponsible and ridiculous. When I saw the report, when I read the report, I'm like, oh my God, where are we? Are they human beings like us? Are they a citizen of this planet 
like all of us trees, birds, insects, or they are just so thinking that they are in a different planet than us. I'm feeling so bad and I'm feeling like, who are they to decide in the future of our world without us? I cannot explain to you the sentiment that I have, the feeling that I have about these irresponsibles. Irresponsible, they, they absolutely are, Hindu. That's that's very powerfully put. And I'd like to just dig deeper here. And you've you've already spoken about here how indigenous communities are particularly impacted, right? And there's also a lot to say, isn't there, about how indigenous communities have the solutions to fight climate change. And and I mentioned to you, Hindu, when we spoke informally, how much I absolutely loved your TED talk. And, and I shared it with my family, my friends, and, and they loved it too. And one of the things you spoke about is how your best app is your grandmother. Could you explain what you mean for our listeners? <laughs> yeah. And of course, I completely assume that my grandmother is my best app. Because when you have a, 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 a an application on the weather, first case, so you wake up in the morning, you all wanted to check if it's going to be cold to wear your jacket or if it is going to be sunny to have your sunglasses or rainy, you have your umbrella. But for us, the weather, it's not about how you can make your style during the day. It is about how you can plan your crops, how you can manage your resources, how you can feed your families, how you can have the balance among all the species of the nature. And my grandmother do not need a phone or an application that maybe can tell you it's going to rain and surprise it's sun rising. So she can just tell you by observing the cloud position, the wind direction, the displacement of the bears, the insect, the little ant that who are sometimes invisible for the peoples. She can observe the behavior of her own cattle and she can tell you if it is going to rain in the next couple of hours or if the next year, the 12 next months, going to be a good season with a regular rains or she have to plan to from where place to which place that she have to live with her cattle. So she is my best app, absolutely, because she used this knowledge that she have from all the generation transferred to her to better plan the adaptation of her people to tell us where to get a fresh water to drink and pasture for our cattle and move from one place to another one to avoid conflict with other communities fighting for the shrinking resources. That is a very powerful case for traditional knowledge. And Hindu, I'm trying to learn more about the migration of indigenous communities myself. And, you know, you mentioned the conflict side of things, but there's also this, how do we say, this restorative relationship, isn't there, with nature, which impacts biodiversity. And could you explain what the relationship is between indigenous communities and biodiversity? Because this is really important for the fight against climate change, isn't it? Absolutely. All our ecosystems who are very diverse around the world are getting impact. And we also saw another report that highlighting more than 60% of our species are just disappear, simply disappear from this planet because of the action of the man that do not allow them to live in balance in our planet. 
So for us, ecosystem are very important and our knowledge are also ecosystemic best. And that's why around the Sahel who have a very fragile ecosystem, having a nomadic pastoralist life can help to get regenerated the resources in a natural way. The example is if my the cattle of my auntie, my uncle, my cousin, move from one place to another one by staying two days and three days and moving forward all the year, it's helped the ecosystem that they left, the cow sheep who can fertile the land in a natural way. And then the species can get into the balance. And all what we do as peoples, it's helping this regeneration to be, to be continuous in this natural way. And when we move from one place to another one, that means also we do not use all the resources of this one place. And then we go to the next one and we let the nature, we let the ecosystem to do the role that they have to do because all of us have the role to play to keep our uh, environment in balance. Every kind of species in this world have a role to play. And yet that's not everyone's reality, right? I mean, now listening to you, I'm thinking about the many who live in, in concrete jungles and cities consuming without you know, really appreciating the impact of that consumption. There's this growing gap, it seems, between people and nature. How, how can we reimagine our relationship with nature? They think that nature is just a resources that we can use to make our life better. That's it. Having a big uh, buildings, and after the buildings, you want to have all the television, televisions, car, car, uh, aircraft, aircraft, whatever. Every single day, we have a new thing that we are using just by stealing the resources of the nature without respecting the other species. It cannot work like that. We need to recreate back the living in harmony with the nature. And maybe for the people in the city, they have supermarket and then they can get them cash and go and buy the food or whatever that they need in the supermarket. But the peoples, the indigenous peoples who are living in the forest, in the savannas, in the mountain, our supermarket are our forests or those savannas or those mountains because those are the place where we can take our food, our medicine. Those are the place who become our school. We learn by living in harmony with. So all the two different worlds, they need to come back and see how we can live back in harmony with the nature. I was saying at the beginning, when just I hear the sound of the birds in the background of Nabil, I feel smiling in my heart and outside. Why? Because it's so beautiful that none kind of the music that can replace this sound of the birds. Because it's reminding me that it is in nature. It's reminding me that we are living all together in harmony. And how beautiful that living in harmony with our species can be if we respect them. I feel differently already listening to the birds, birds around me. And I know my heart is smiling too. And I'm sure the hearts of our listeners are 
Look, um, Hindu, I just want to, I want to talk about power for a second and how they take this kind of message that you're sharing with us. And you're addressing powerful world leaders on a regular basis. You're, you're having the chance to really challenge them directly. Like, how are they taking the message that you put to them? And, and is there a particular message that you reserve for the leaders of rich nations? I'm privileged to get the opportunity addressing the head of state, head of government, and maybe uh, the CEO of business to make them understand that we are all equal and we have also a nature that needs our protections. So I always give them the message of they cannot take the decisions alone or saying that they are taking in our behalf. Maybe it's worked for a long time in this system that few people deciding for the rest of the world. And that's what's happening, that developed countries always de- decide for developing countries. It's come through colonizations. It's come before that for the slavery. It's come after that during the democracy that they design. I Tell them that this system is not working any longer. So you need to take us into these tables of decision making. We need to decide for our future together. I'm keeping telling them that they cannot exclude us. They cannot take us as beneficiaries. They cannot design the project and come for us and say, oh, it's a charity. Then they are going to implement it. It's a good face. We are not a charity. We wanted to be a partners. We wanted to decide for our features. We wanted to design our features all together. And that's messages I'm telling to all of them, head of state, head of government, business leaders. And I tell them there is no sustainable world or sustainable business or sustainable power without sustainable environment. And for the developed countries especially, my message is it is enough. It's really enough. They have to stop all the fossil fuel. They have to stop all the coal mining. They have developed all the renewable energy. They have all the technology that can make continuous them life in the same trajectory that they have. And as big as these challenges are Hindu, I'm, I want to bring us to a place where we can talk about hope um, as we're approaching the end of the interview. And I've been reflecting on what you have said in the past about the Lake Chad Basin shrinking increasingly over time. And I'm trying to think, you know, if things are done right today, what can we imagine it will look like standing at the edge of that lake decades from now? So what would you hope the world will look like in 2050, for example? My hope will be to see all our nature coming back, to see all the nations going to the zero emission. No anymore extracting industries to our nature. No anymore harming our forests by cutting them or burning them. No anymore using all the fossil fuel we have underground. I wanted to see in the next 30 years the clean energy in my community when they can turn on the light and then the kids can read and at least they can enjoy the life sustainability. I wanted to see my people's accessing just the clean water to drink because it is not the case to now. We are in 21st centuries. 
People are still drinking the water from rivers, from the lake. Is it acceptable? I wanted to see them accessing to this clean water. I wanted to see the nature that I used to be on when I was a kid, playing with the colorful and beautiful bears. I wanted to have our cattle that milk as before, to do not use the powder milk that they are sending from the Europe, but using the milk from our cattle that producing during the dry season and during the rain season. I wanted to see people's respecting, recognizing, living in harmony with the nature back. It can be in the city of Paris, New York, Delhi. I wanted to see those people understand what is nature. They know all the species, not only like watching them in the TVs or buying the product on the supermarket, but I wanted them to understand the importance of what the nature is giving us. And I think... uh, Kennedy said that in his speech. I just like realized that a couple of weeks ago. Don't ask what you, what your country do for you. Ask what you do for your country. And I wanted all the peoples of the world ask not what our planet does for us, what they can do for our planet. If they ask these questions, I think we will have the better futures all. Hindu, I have to say everything you say you hope for, I truly, truly hope also becomes our reality. Um, it's been such an honor to have you join us on the podcast. Thank you so, so much for making the time. Yes, Hindu, thank you. And, and more than thank you, we salute you and we stand in solidarity with you in this fight that you're leading with so many others around the world. And, and it's a fight for all of our futures. So, so thank you. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for all the reports and all what you are doing too. Well, before anything, Nadia, I've got to tell you, I feel totally validated now about the birds singing around my house. What did you think of the interview? <laughs> oh, I think that's very fair. And I promise I will never make fun of you for the for the background sounds. <laughs> no, but listen, Hindu is a visionary, man. She's so clear on how, you know, how the system is failing and calling out those who are acting irresponsibly. Absolutely. She's so very real. And, and she particularly got me thinking about my own relationship with nature, you know. Me too. Me too. I mean, when I referenced the concrete jungles, I was I was thinking about myself and my family. I mean, we have live in such an urban environment, even if we have trees around us and a river. I mean, it's it's very concrete. I don't even know that my kids really know what, you know, stars in the sky and their full beauty actually look like. Oh, you must you must get your family over here to Nairobi, Nadia. I can actually see the stars as I speak to you right now, actually, which has <laughs> totally got me in the zone for this podcast. But really, I think I was really thinking that this is at its heart, it's about an economic model, right, that doesn't want us to see that link between our consumption and the suffering of people on the planet, you know? That's right. And it really reminds us why we've got to have people like Hindu, people whose communities are on the front lines of the climate catastrophe. Having people like Hindu is so important in spaces of influence and decision making. Absolutely, and 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 not and not those big oil men that that so often do make the decisions. Now, one of the really remarkable parts of the interview is when we we spoke about research that shows who is driving this climate crisis and and who is consuming. And it's a real pleasure for me, and it really is to be 
now able to to welcome a very dear colleague and a dear friend, Tim Gore, who was the author of that research. And I was going to say climate geek, but maybe I should say climate guru. I would call him a guru, man. Even Leonardo DiCaprio has quoted his work. That's I mean, full-on guru. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Tim. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much. And thanks for eventually doing an episode on climate change. It's only been about a year. So well, I, guess, I, 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 I guess this means you're, you're, you're finally listening to the Equals podcast, Tim. Um, no but seriously tim uh, congratulations on the on the amazing research i would love to to have you talk us through the headline of of this uh, recent work and what you call extreme carbon inequality thanks sure so the the report is about how this extreme carbon inequality over the past 20 to 30 years in particular has brought the world to the brink of climate catastrophe We show in the report how from 1990 to 2015, the amount of carbon that was added to the atmosphere doubled. And in that period, about uh, over half of it came from just the richest 10% of people on the planet. And the richest 1% alone uh, were responsible for more than double the amount of the poorest half of humanity combined. So that's the really stark inequality that we talk about, but then we try and put it in a bit more context as well. Now, remember that the climate crisis is driven by the total amount of carbon added to the atmosphere over time. And if we want to keep global heating below the really catastrophic levels, um, uh, which in in the Paris Agreement, the goal is set at 1.5 degrees, that's that's what we're trying to do, keep keep the global uh, temperature below that level then there's only a certain amount of carbon that we can add to the atmosphere. And in those 25 years, we show that the richest 10% alone used up about a third of that total amount, that total carbon budget. And what is left will be entirely gone by 2030 on current rates unless we completely change course now. That's the real urgency. So really, it's a story about how the global carbon budget has been squandered not to alleviate poverty, not to bring um, decent standards of living to the poorest people on the planet, but really just to increase the consumption of the already affluent. What does this tell us about what needs to be done uh, for the way we tackle climate change? What do we do about it now? Well, I do think that you know, over, over the last 10, 20 years, to the extent that people have been thinking about climate policy, it's been very easy to blame poor countries or middle income countries, you know, China, India, who are got millions of people that are trying to escape poverty. And a lot of people, you know, point the finger there and they say, well, you know, all of these coal fired power stations, you know, surely that's the problem. What we're able to show is that, of course, that is a problem. We've got to do something about that. But there's a, you know, we're a big part of the problem in rich countries as well. I mean, over half of the emissions coming from those of us that that are in the richest 10%. So we do need you know, new policies designed for people like us, you know, to get our consumption down. There's no other way of hitting these very tough climate targets without people like us actually, you know, using less energy than we do today. We've got to find a different type of economy, one that shrinks the total amount of energy that we are all consuming and redistributes the wealth that our economy generates much more fairly so that everyone can enjoy a decent standard of living but within the limits that our planet can bear. For me, this is really the important turn now that the debate needs to take. It's about questioning growth itself. And I'm really interested, just to finish off here, is is this fundamentally about 
rich nations and 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 how do we approach that question is it is it about making the global economy grow less as a whole well ultimately yes it, it is you know we we can't hit these climate targets while pursuing uh aggregate economic growth you know growth of gdp just for the sake of it you know infinitely forevermore that is not compatible with uh our planetary boundaries there's no, there's no easy way around it. You know, there is no chance for so-called green growth in the very small amount of time that we have left. We're simply consuming too much, but not, not all of us are consuming too much, but a very small minority of the global population are totally over-consuming. And that's what we've got to change. This next 10 years, this is our absolute last chance saloon to do things differently. And every opportunity any of us have to reduce our own personal uh, use of energy we should take, but fundamentally we need governments to set us on a different path. We need them to create the low-carbon alternatives for us to take and to prioritise growing some parts of the economy. Yes, the low-carbon parts, we want to prioritise growing hospitals, we want to prioritise growing renewable energy industries, but completely deprioritising growth in, in other parts of the economy, parts that don't benefit people's well-being. We don't need more airports, we don't need uh, more car industries producing highly polluting cars. We just need to think, you know, much more carefully about the parts of the economy that we're trying to grow and for what purpose. And I guess maybe this is, might come back to some of the things that Hindu is talking about. You know, what what's it for? You know, it's got we've got to re-establish that link with nature, with the natural world. So basically, what I'm saying is that we need to think much more about the purpose of our economy. If it's not to improve the well-being of people then what is the point? Absolutely amazing, Tim. Thank you very, very much for joining us, man. And that's incredibly thoughtful. And Nadia, I don't know about you, but I think we should just just talk about climate for the rest of the equal season. Hey, I wouldn't mind. It's that important of an issue. And and Tim, thank you. That was such a fascinating way to wrap up and really grateful to you for coming on the podcast, really, and, and hope to have you again soon. Well, if you keep talking about climate change, I'll keep listening. Thanks, guys. That's <laughs> <laughs> a great time. Bye, Tim. And hey, thanks everyone out there for joining us once again. And do share this podcast with your friends and your family and, and do give us a, a five-star rating. Look forward to you joining us next time. Thank you. Bye.